And a good Sunday to you. It is nine minutes past seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. My name is Susie Jones. Charlie Weiss at the helm this morning on this, where are we, Charlie? Second or third day of Hanukkah? Second? Third. 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 Yes. You're putting me on the spot here. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. I was just thinking. We are in Hanukkah. I know we are. I'm not good at paying attention to days. You're not? No, not really. You don't light the menorah? No, I don't actually. Not at my at my little apartment. We don't. <laughs> okay, yeah. I won't hold it against you. But we are celebrating uh, this holiday season here at WCCO Radio. I say we celebrate all year long. That's, I don't. I I feel bad that we only like take this time to be grateful and meaningful and intentional, like once a, one time a year. Yeah. <laughs> we should stretch it out. How are you, Charlie? Pretty good. I'm okay. Okay. Recovering a little bit. I was a little sick last couple weeks. Oh, no. I'm good now. Well, good thing we're talking about health and wellness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk this hour to Dr. Gavin Bart. He is the chief of addictive and complementary medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center. And because it's the holidays, we're going to talk a little bit about alcohol and the holiday season and keeping safe, but also kind of because we have an hour together, uh, Dr. Bart does a lot of research into lots of things, including methamphetamine and cocaine, um, the use of both of those of which are rising and they're complicating the opioid crisis. You know, we've got that going on, we've got fentanyl. So with this other increase, sort of what's happening there, a lot of cool research happening at the Hennepin Health Research Institute, of which I didn't even know they had one, to be honest with you. That's very new to me. So, Dr. Bart, thank you for coming on with us. Happy to have you. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Well, we would have had you in, but goodness gracious, it was terrible getting in today. Very slick out there. Oh, boy. Thanks for the warning. (laughs) And to everyone. You don't want to slip and fall and break a hip or break a wrist right before... uh, it's time to cook, bake cookies or something like that. So let's start with um, your work at the Institute, just kind of generally, because I don't think a lot of people know the research that's done at Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. Um, kind of talk about the whole place, first of all, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute is part of Hennepin Healthcare. Most people may know us as HCMC you know, the main safety net hospital for Minnesota. We've got a diverse group of researchers who are really doing research focused on health. This isn't as much sort of test tubes and beakers. This is medical research that is really helping patients. So we are the third largest medical research uh, institute based on NIH funding in the state of Minnesota. So we're very active. We have a very large and active addiction medicine research group that focuses, as you mentioned, on cocaine, methamphetamine, opioids. We have a very large group that is focusing on tobacco and uh, the development of even vaccines to help treat some addictions. Uh, We've got a group focusing on homelessness and chronic health conditions being faced by people who have uh, insecure housing. We've got a group that's focusing on health issues related to people involved in the criminal justice system. And we're the home of the National Registry for people who are on hemodialysis for uh, uh, kidney disease, as well as uh, major organ 
donation recipients. We are the main clearinghouse and data center for uh, all information related to solid organ transplants in the United States. So there is a lot of research being done at HHRI uh, to help the people in Minnesota and the United States, even, even globally. That is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, like I said, a lot of times there are gems among us that we aren't all that aware of. So thanks for letting us know about the work you're doing. Let's start with your work on methamphetamine and cocaine use on the rise and how, as you say, it is complicating the opioid crisis. In what way? Well, first of all, I think people might not be aware that this is going on. We're hearing so much in the news these days about opioids, and that is true. More than 109,000 people in the United States died from an opioid overdose in the last year. What we aren't hearing as much about is that the use of cocaine and methamphetamine is complicating that. So, in some places, up to 40, even 50% of those people who are dying from an opioid overdose are also using stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine. So in Minnesota, when we look at admissions for addiction treatment, uh, there are actually more admissions in the state of Minnesota for treatment of methamphetamine use disorder than there are for opioid use disorder. Yet we hear a lot more about opioid use disorder. Wow, that's interesting. Isn't that true, though? The media really gloms on to the opioid overdose factor and doesn't really think about other drugs out there. Listen, let's do this. It, it is about 15 minutes past 7 o'clock. Our phone number, if you're listening, if you have a question or a comment or you want to be involved in the conversation in any way, remember you're always welcome to do that. That number is 651-461-9226. Again, 651-461-9226. And again, we're speaking to Dr. Gavin Bart. Uh, doctor at the Hennepin Health Research Institute, and he is the chief of addictive and complementary medicine. We're going to talk more about this increase in use of cocaine and methamphetamine and what it's doing and what you're finding about that. I mean, a cocaine sort of was a was a drug of the 80s, but we're seeing a resurge here. It is 716 on News Talk 830 WCCO. We're back after this quick break. It is just about 20 minutes past 7 on a Sunday morning, 26 degrees outside. If you're just tuning in, I want to tell you it snowed last night, snowed yesterday, and there is a slick coat of kind of an ice. So if you're walking out to church or what have you or wherever you're going today, shopping, what have you, uh, please take it easy out there. 651-461-9226, Four six one nine two two six. If you have a question, we're talking to Dr. Gavin Bart, is the chief addiction, addictive and complementary medicine doctor at Hennepin County Medical Center and the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. And as we move into the holidays, we're talking about addiction and people. You know, you kind of see it. Maybe you don't see somebody for a really long time, and all of a sudden it's the holidays, and they show up, and they're looking rough. And we're talking about the work that's done at the Institute to to help find ways to help people. And I want to let our listeners know, if you're listening at any time, you know, we pick topics each and every week, Charlie and I, and we get suggestions from various 
healthcare institutions and hospitals and clinics. And if you ever have a question, I mean, have a comment or a suggestion, that's what we're talking about. If you're listening right now and you have an idea, maybe you want to talk about colon cancer. Maybe you want to talk about heart health or lung health or any, there are so many topics. Charlie and I were just talking off the air about smallpox, right, Charlie? What were you saying about smallpox? Vaccination, and it was the uh, anniversary yesterday of the eradication of smallpox in 1979. So to people listening, if you're still listening, if you have a thought or a suggestion, please text it in. But on that note, let's see. Hi, doctor. Can you say a bit about the psychology of the person adding fentanyl to these stimulants? Is the intent to increase the high, if so... Or is it to do harm? This is from Hank. He says, thanks for a good show, Susie. Go ahead, doctor. Can you address that question? Yeah. Well, I don't think people who are using drugs, their intention is to cause harm to themselves. But uh, sometimes the drugs have that effect. I've heard it from both directions. A person who may primarily enjoy using opioids, but they find that the opioids sometimes make them too sleepy, too sedated. They now need to get to work, but they're they're too sleepy. So they add stimulants to, to try to stay awake. And I've heard it the opposite way of people who are using stimulants and find they're way too awake, way too stimulated, uh, too amped up. And adding an opioid to that can help cut the edge off of it and, and, and make it a little less um, uh, tweaky, as, as some drug users might yeah. say. Yes. Then there's a whole group it's not huge, but it is out there who don't know that they're using. Maybe their intention is to only use cocaine. They have no desire to use an opioid whatsoever, but the person who's selling them their cocaine, maybe that person sells fentanyl as well and didn't use the best of techniques when they were splitting up their heroin, their fentanyl supply from their cocaine supply and a little bit of that uh, fentanyl cross-contaminated the cocaine and, and someone who had no intention of using fentanyl ends up finding it in their cocaine and that places them at extreme risk for overdose because they aren't used to any kind of opioid. Do you work with addicts? I mean, are you talking to real people in the clinic at the institute or are you getting anecdotal information? Where do you get information to do your research? Yeah, so uh, Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute is part of HCMC. So one of the hats I, I wear is we have a division of addiction medicine uh, at the hospital where we have outpatient treatment services and inpatient addiction medicine consultation services. So on any given day, uh, we're seeing close to 350 people in our clinic alone for addiction medicine, and about one-third of all hospital beds at HCMC are occupied pe- by people who have a substance use disorder. So we're, we're hearing a lot from, from the people who are being impacted by drug use. That is, that's a big number. That sort of surprised me, how much what, yeah. Yeah, what you're seeing there. Yeah, and I mean, they aren't all in the hospital because of their substance use disorder. I mean, people have heart attacks, people, you know, get in car accidents, uh, people might slip on the ice, as you mentioned today, and, and, and break a bone, and they're in the hospital. But they, uh, but while there, uh, we then end up identifying that they may have some problematic substance use, and we're, we're there to begin offering services to them. 
I love that. 651-461-9226. That's the number to call if you are listening and you have a comment or a question for Dr. Bart. Dr. Gavin Bart is at the Chief Addictive and Complementary Medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center in the Research Arm, the Research Institute. We're talking about addiction and the holidays and what you're seeing out there in the community and the research that you're doing. And I was doing a little digging on you, if you don't mind, and I read something that said you believe that efforts to treat addiction need to work and look beyond short-term detoxification of patients to provide ongoing addiction treatment, which can help prevent future relapses. Talk about, this is very fascinating to me, and I realize some people think I talk about addiction too much or mental health, but I do think those are pretty prevalent issues in the community. The research on the psychological and genetic factors that play into the development of addiction and affect treatment outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about that? So if a person has a gene in their body that predisposes them to addiction, and how does that play into whether or not they actually become a full-blown addict, and what is the research you're looking at? Yeah, well, I think we first need to understand that our genes aren't necessarily our destiny. They more influence the chances of things occurring. So so you may have a very strong family history of heart disease. It doesn't mean you're going to get heart disease, but you're at increased risk for heart disease compared to people who don't have that history. And the same is true for things like substance use disorders, where there are multiple genetic factors that are interacting. There's no one single gene that causes addiction, but there are multiple variants of genes that interact with the environment. And when I say environment, that could be childhood experiences, maybe trauma, uh, and most importantly, the use of substances. Obviously, you can't become addicted to a substance if you never try it. Uh, But we know that lots of people try drugs in the United States uh, and around the world. And so of those who do try, Uh, some are going to be at risk for developing an addiction. And there are genetic and biological factors that influence that risk one way or the other, uh, but don't necessarily outright prevent it or cause it. So carrying on with that thought, just looking more at some of the research that you're doing in terms of um, people who have a specific abnormal stress response have a predisposition to developing an addiction and are more likely to relapse after treatment. Do, do you identify this stress response, this abnormal stress re- response, and how do you know if you have it or not? Well, the world is stressful. We all experience stress. So stress in and of itself is not abnormal, But there are some people who, either through genetics or, again, life experiences, maybe trauma, maybe abuse, but also drugs themselves can influence how our brain reacts to stress. Now, this might be more at something we can measure in terms of the various hormones and neurotransmitters that impact stress. So it's not necessarily a conscious abnormality to the person who's experiencing it. But I think one of the uh, 
simple ways for people to think about this is think of people you may know who have had trouble with alcohol or maybe have had trouble quitting smoking. And maybe they quit for a while. When are they more likely to go back to it? It's when they're stressed out. It's when maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they've gotten in a fight with a loved one. Uh, these are the stressors that often push people over the edge and they return to, to substance use. And part of that is because what's happening in the brain and chemically to stressors that we all experience is, is uh, producing a behavioral response that we don't all experience that may be more likely to occur in people who have a history of substance use. And looking even further into that, then as part of your research, are you looking at developing pharmaceutical treatments that can kind of temper that stress response and maybe help people remain sober so that when stress comes up, if they're taking a certain medication, it doesn't trigger that same response? Well, yes. We, we aren't looking directly or specifically targeting uh, the stress response, although there are other groups around the country and the world that are doing that. But we are looking at various medications and then the impact that those medications that are used to treat addiction might have on stress response. So we are currently engaged in a research study uh, combining two medications for the treatment of cocaine use disorder. We know uh, that at least one of these medications does have an impact on stress response. That's probably not the main reason it can be effective, but uh, it's part of the story of why it might be effective. We won't know if it's effective until the study's done. We're still recruiting people. Okay. Uh, but these are the kinds of questions we're trying to answer. Great. We have to take another break, doctor, so we'll just hold the line right here. But I do want to invite people to text their questions at 651-461-9226. You can actually call or you can use that number to text. And we have a few more text questions coming in as well. So we'll get to those right after this break for weather after this on News Talk 830 WCCO. It is 7.35 on a Sunday morning. A little slick out there. Do be careful if you're heading out this morning early to go to church or wherever you happen to be heading. My name is Susie Jones. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Dr. Gavin Hart. He is a doctor at Hennepin Healthcare in the Research Institute. We're talking about addiction and we're talking about the holidays and people overusing alcohol showing up drunk if we get there we're also we're kind of in the middle of our conversation right now on the work that he's doing at the hospital dr bart a texture writes in if my 47 year old daughter was on many medications for her heart and other conditions and was receiving immunotherapy side effects were all heart Failure. How would a medical examiner decide her cause of death was meth? So it looks like this person might have lost someone and the cause of death was methamphetamines, but she was also on a lot of other drugs for her heart. Is it something that just, is it a blood test? How do you determine that? And maybe that's too, yeah, too intricate. So, too intricate. Yeah, that's, I'm so sorry. There are way too many people in the United States who are losing their lives uh, to deaths that involve drugs. Uh, 
This is a very challenging thing to determine and probably best asked to a medical examiner. At this point, it's very hard to make a clear-cut absolute cause of death, especially when there are multiple things going on and we can detect drugs in someone's body. Sometimes we can uh, measure those levels of drugs and determine that the level of drug in the body at the time of death was one that was so great, such a high level of drug that it was likely the cause of death. Uh, but that is less common, where we're absolutely certain that the blood level is the main cause of death. And then when we're talking about multiple other health conditions and other medications where there could be interactions between the medications and a drug like methamphetamine that could affect the heart, it's likely, again, I don't know this specific case, where sometimes the best answer we can come up with is that the drug use was a contributing cause of death uh, if we aren't able to say it was the main cause of death. Got it. 651-461-9226 if you have a question for Dr. Bart. Another texter writes in, do you regard gabapine as addictive? What is Oh, gabapentin. Gabapentin. Okay. Very yeah. Good. yeah. This so, person says, uh, been on a low dose, um, but feels like you can't get off it. So go ahead. Yeah, so there are a lot of medications out there that are used for a variety of health conditions where suddenly stopping them can cause a sort of withdrawal syndrome. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're addictive, uh, but it means that the body becomes used to the presence of the medication and suddenly stopping can cause some symptoms. And so gabapentin, if suddenly stopped, can cause some mild symptoms that make it difficult to go cold turkey off of it and is best uh, tapered. There's also a slight dating effect uh, of gabapentin. And so we find a lot of people who do use drugs, who maybe do have an addiction, uh, may misuse gabapentin because they uh, like the slightly sedating effect of it. So Certainly, gabapentin can be misused. It uh, would very rarely, if ever, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen a person whose primary sort of addiction, if you will, would be to something like gabapentin. All right. Thanks to that texter for that question. 651-461-9226. This is an opportunity for you to text us or call us on our talk and text line, 651-461-9226. Again, we're talking to Dr. Gavin Bart at Hennepin Healthcare in the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. Appreciate your time, Dr. Bart. Um, talk a little bit more about I'm reading about some of the specific research that you're working on right now, which I find to be uh, fascinating in terms of we were talking a little earlier about the stress response and what you found in research that one particular group in particular, uh, the Hmong, respond particularly well to opiate addiction treatment methods compared to people in other genetic groups. Is that Talk about that study and how you came about Sort of, did you discover that, or did you set out to look specifically at one group? Well, that really came from our clinic. So as we know, Minnesota has a large immigrant population uh, who identify as Hmong. Uh, many of them 
uh, were in horrible uh, war conditions back during the, the Vietnam War era. They fought as soldiers on behalf of the United States quite valiantly uh, and grew up and lived in areas that were completely removed from the healthcare system. They didn't have healthcare. They had their own indigenous health as farmers. Some of them grew opium poppies and uh, would use opium for injuries related to war, both physical injuries, but sometimes post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the immigration process in and of itself, coming to a new country, fleeing as refugees, living in refugee camps, also increased some of the risk of developing addiction. And so uh, Hmong, just as every other population isn't aren't immune to developing substance use problems. One thing I noticed, and my colleagues and others noticed in Minnesota, we at Hennepin Healthcare, we have a number of Hmong-speaking licensed alcohol drug professionals, is that our Hmong population, compared to the non-Hmong population, did really well in their treatments for opioid addiction when given the medication methadone. Uh, they did just as poorly as everyone else did when they weren't given medication. So there was something unique about the medication. And this is a medication that works better as the doses get a little bit bigger. Yet the Hmong were doing better on lower doses, which was counterintuitive. And so we engaged in research funded through the National Institute on Drug Abuse and in cooperation with our Hmong patient population to try to understand this. And we identified that our Hmong patients uh, were metabolizing or processing methadone differently than our non-Hmong patients. And that was explaining, in part, why they were doing better in treatment using lower doses of the medication. And is there a gene attached to that? I mean, is there something you can replicate to help other people? Or is it just a discovery that you found this particular group of people? Do you know what I'm getting at? Can you expand that success to replicate it and help others? Well, yeah. So we we have identified in, in that study as well as a, another study uh, genes that influence the metabolism of methadone and another medication for opioid use disorder called buprenorphine, and that even influence some interactions with other medications. Uh we weren't able to identify that any of these genes were specific to Hmong individuals, but we did identify genes that do influence. And there is some interest, not just in addiction, but in medicine in general, about uh, getting better therapeutic effects of medications by altering their metabolism so that maybe lower doses or even less toxic doses of some medications could be used uh, but getting the same therapeutic benefit as a higher dose simply by altering their metabolism. And sometimes that may be through in influencing the genes that uh, affect drug metabolism. Mm. That's interesting. That's like promising, would you say, as far as the going forward? I mean, are you hopeful that some with more research you can find ways to combat and help people to recover and heal from addiction? Yes, we are in such an exciting time for addiction uh, research and treatment discovery. Uh, our understanding of the brain, of uh, genetics, is just growing so rapidly. 
that there's amazing work being done right now on not only new medication development, but even uh, devices that can help with neuromodulation to uh, alter brain uh, function. As, as we know, people, when they get stressed out or people may have difficult times making uh, appropriately rewarding decisions and choose uh, drugs over uh, less harmful uh, rewards and, and my colleagues and I at the University of Minnesota through the medical discovery team on addiction are working on ways uh, to help influence how people are making these decisions and help sort of recalibrate the brain into making uh, healthier choices uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, drugs and preventing relapse to drug use. That's great. Good to know. Say, we're going to take our final break of the hour at 651-461-9226. If you're listening, you're you're listening to Dr. Gavin Bart with Hennepin Healthcare and the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute and also with the University of Minnesota. So we have time for more more calls and texts at 651-461-9226. We've got a couple more text questions. We'll get to that after this quick break on News Talk 830-WCCO. It is 7.50 on a Sunday morning. It is the 10th of December, As we, if you're checking your clock, where are we in time? Dr. Gavin Bart is with us with the Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute talking about addiction and alcoholism and the mess that it has made in our community. Uh, Texture writes this morning at 651-461-9226. I hear that nitazine is more potent than fentanyl. Uh, what is that? I've never heard of nitazine. What, what is it and is it more powerful than fentanyl? So, yeah, there are a variety of synthetic opioids. And when I say that these these are completely made in a laboratory, there's no... Uh, semblance of anything having come from an opioid poppy. And fentanyl is one of them. And there are a variety of other uh, novel opioids. Uh, there are a number of them that fall within a nitazine class. So uh, isonitazine, sometimes just referred to as iso, is highly potent. Uh, it's not as common as fentanyl, but we're, we're seeing it every now and then. Uh, and again, when people don't know what drug they're getting and they don't know the potency of it, that places them at increased risk for overdosing uh, because they don't have a way of controlling what uh, amount they can use that is a safe amount. Uh, so when a drug like ISO or any of the other nitazines are showing up, uh, it, it can really uh, cause a danger to people who are using drugs. I just think it's so scary out there. I've done so many stories, doctor, where uh, families have come forward, particularly one comes to mind. A 16-year-old was depressed, and she, on Snapchat, bought what she thought was Percocet, and it was fentanyl, and she was dead in, like, five seconds. And her mom spoke out about the dangers, and I think a legislator was there. But, I mean, it really is. If you're a young person... And, or you're an old person and you have a young person in your life, just to stress the importance of not rolling the dice. If you am buying something online, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, it just gives me a stomachache because it's so 
I think kids don't really understand or people that are doing it maybe just want to get high and don't think about the potential deadly impact of what they're doing. Yeah, it's really worrisome. Uh, fentanyl is so potent, it's easy to shape it into what look like legitimate prescription pills. So these are counterfeits. They look like the real thing. And so it may be that a person had no intention of using an opioid, but they were feeling stressed out or depressed and maybe on Snapchat or something else bought a pill that they were hoping might relieve some of their anxiety, thinking it could be anti-anxiety medication, when in fact it was counterfeit and, and stuffed full of fentanyl, enough to to kill someone. So it's really important to never get medications that aren't being prescribed for you and aren't coming from legitimate medical pharmacy uh, yeah. Uh, sources. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have about a minute left together. I really appreciate your time. Do you want to sort of wrap up final thoughts on in terms of the work you're doing? I know we're sort of talking about the dangers out there, but also maybe a bit of hope going forward with the work you're doing? Yeah. Like I said before, this is a really exciting time. Addictions are chronic diseases. They can last a lifetime, like high blood pressure, diabetes lasts a lifetime, but they are totally treatable, like diabetes and high blood pressure. We have the potential to discover great interventions and new treatments for things like methamphetamine and cocaine and we're really hoping that the public will help engage in this research because we can't do any medical breakthrough without conversations and participation by the people who are being affected by addiction. So I really want to thank the listenership for joining us this morning and learning about some of the work we're doing at Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Bark. Good to have you on. We'll, we'll circle back and have you on again sometime. Thank you so much. Have a great day. 754 on News Talk 830 WCCO.